Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, and a happy Labor Day to you as the summer comes to a conclusion. The Hillsdale Dialogue uh, reignites with energy we've never done before. It's a special three-hour Hillsdale Dialogue for Labor Day. Uh, The last two hours devoted to the theories of Marx, Lenin, Stalin, and communism. And then this hour with Dr. Larry Arnn and his colleague, Dr. Paul Marino, who is uh, uh, sitting in now for Tom West chair, uh, on American labor and why it did not go crazy in the way that communism did. And uh, Paul Marino holds the Grucock Chair in the American Constitution at Hillsdale College. He's a member of the James Madison Society at Princeton University. He wrote the uh, From Direct Action to Affirmative Action, Fair Employment Law and Policy in America, and Black Americans in Organized Labor. He's a labor historian. Dr. Marino, welcome. It's great to have you on Labor Day. Thank you, Hugh. Great to be on the show. And uh, Dr. Arn sitting in at the Hillsdale studio, you by phone. Let me ask you at the beginning, I read your Organized Labor in American Law. It's an amazing piece. I've been looking for something like this for years, but I've never actually trusted anyone to teach me the history of American labor. Is that a widespread problem? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The whole field of labor history really only began in the 1960s. And most of its founders were were pretty explicit that they you know that they had an agenda. They had uh, you know they wanted to use history for political purposes. So you're quite right to be suspicious about uh, stuff that's labeled labor history. Now I don't often do this, but I want to read uh, two thirds of a paragraph you wrote just to give people your overall theory. A composite account of American labor goes something like this: Unions were outlawed as criminal conspiracies before 1842. Even after courts recognized their legal existence, their methods, strikes, picketing, boycotting, were useless because laissez-faire free labor formalism hid the overwhelming economic power of employers behind a facade of equality. Courts then subverted the 14th Amendment from its purpose of protecting black civil rights and turned it into a shield for the property rights of big business. In the Gilded Age, courts fashioned the labor injunction to recriminalize unions. Worse still, when Congress enacted antitrust laws to curb big businesses, judges used them to crush organized labor. Judges also vitiated congressional and state acts to exempt unions from injunctions and antitrust laws. When Congress finally acted in the 30s, either it did so primarily to dampen truly radical working class activism or the federal courts and administrators de-radicalized congressional intent. In either case, national labor relations ended up as a net loss for organizing labor. Union power eroded after World War II and collapsed after 1980, largely due to political and legal disadvantages. So I want my audience to know, at Hillsdale, you have great clarity about how labor in America developed and the obstacles which it faced. Well, yes, and uh, I thought it's really important to, you can't leave a field like labor history. It's an important thing for people to know about. And uh, I think one of the things uh, we have to do as historians is, is take on you know, the accepted narratives that the left has been producing, you know, mostly since the 1960s. And so, Larry Arn, when, when you talk to people about unions, do you, how do you, what tone do you strike with them and their role in American history? Well, um, you know, first of all, there's a principle, right? I think people have freedom of association. And so if they want to join and, you know, join together, they can do that. That's fine. Freedom of association also means... You don't have to associate. And so I'm against compelled unionism, and uh, especially when unions are politically active. Uh, I don't think anybody ought to have to join a union to get a job. And on the other hand, if a bunch of workers want to join and and talk to their employer together, I've always thought that was okay and uh, better than okay. It's a right, I think. 
And so that's what I think. I don't know. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the crucial word there is, uh, is coercion or compulsion. And I think when most people think about collective bargaining, they think about it as a, a voluntary uh, thing, uh, they, they approve of it. But when you get down to the details of, of how collective bargaining actually works in most states, uh, you know, Michigan recently just became a, uh, a voluntary union state. Uh, that's what that's where the controversy really begins. We call them right-to-work states. And, and uh, for the benefit of the audience, Paul Marino, would you explain what that means? Sure. Uh, under the, the Wagner Act back in 1935, uh, the basic rules were an employer had to bargain. This is the compulsory part. He was compelled to bargain with whatever organization was chosen by a majority of his employees. Uh, and you were compelled to uh, join a union if that was one of the uh, conditions that the uh, union uh, negotiated. And so that made it compulsory both on the employer and on a minority of workers who might not want to join uh, any union at all, or maybe not this or that uh, particular union. And since 1947, states have been given the option to opt out of that so that they can compel uh, workers to pay dues to support a union that they don't, they don't want to join. And it was mostly states in the South and the uh, West that adopted these right-to-work laws. Uh, and then very recently, Michigan uh, became one of them. And, and the result is um, business flocks to those places that do not compel them to, uh, to be unionized and to, and to operate under non-right-to-work state rules. And there's a lesson in that, Larry Arn, about the basic American preference for free association, but with a respect for the associational rights of owners and non-union members. That's right. And, and, you know, so in one model of the economy, we've been talking about Marx, capital is the inveterate enemy of labor. Uh, the privileges of capital make it an economic fact that labor will always be competed down to subsistence wages, whereas capital will benefit greatly. And so if you hold that view of the world, then you want to do things like compulsory unions and make labor into a force with, with government behind it so that it can stand up to capital. In another view, uh, first of all, people are – they carry the motive force for their own well-being inside themselves. They work in a free economy. They, 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 they profit by voluntary transactions where they have to benefit somebody else. In a competitive economy, if some uh, employer is exploitive, then then people will work for somebody else. And wages will be set by market conditions, and they will tend to rise as prosperity grows. And so if you look at the world that, that second way, that's happy news because then you can have limited government and people can make their own way. But if it's that, that first way, then you're going to have to have these great powers that are always the capital and labor with government behind uh, controlling both of them, really. And the individual, what's he matter? Yeah. To both. Yeah. I mean, watch the movie On the Waterfront. Uh, now, now i got to ask Dr. Marino. That you, you write, and you persuaded me overnight, that there's a, a gentle pendulum at work here. It's not a revolutionary pendulum. It's a pendulum between pro-union, non-pro-union. Uh, and that 1919 Boston police strike and the Patco strike are two swings of the pendulum, but that generally labor and its power finds its own level. Is that a fair assessment of your uh, summary? Yes, I think so. 
so, and I think most economic historians recognize that most of the progress of American labor, you know, rising living standards, the things that have happened in, in almost all uh, developed economies, uh, haven't been because of labor unions. They've been because of you know, the just you know, economic progress, increasing uh, a substitution of capital for labor, so that you can get a lot more with a lot less, you know, sweat. Uh, and that you know, over the over the long run, society. Uh, divides the economy between capital and labor at a, at a pretty, a pretty uh, uh, steady rate, so that the, the pendulums of, of inequality and uh, uh, potential for sort of uh, revolutionary discontent really aren't that great, haven't been that great in American history. You know, you're actually in the best place in the world to write about this, because Michigan, uh, I remember when I was writing a book about Mitt Romney having to research his dad, George Romney, and Walter Ruther and George Romney hated each other. I mean, they hated each other. But you have all this vast archive at your fingertips, don't you? Yeah, in fact, there's the Walter Ruther archives at uh, Wayne State University is where I, I did some of my research on the uh, issue of, of race and uh, labor unions. Now, with the, a minute to the break, would the original union guys, whether it's Walter Ruther or, or John Lewis or, or all the other guys, would they recognize the public employee unions of today as their heirs, or would they look at them sidelong glances that they were privileged white-collar entitlement rent seekers? <laughs> they might not go that far, but certainly at the time in the 1930s, uh, all of these guys, and Franklin Roosevelt included, uh, all said, well, of course, uh, you, you can't have organization, compulsory unionism uh, in, in government em- employment. It's a completely different uh, situation. You know, there are political issues. There's the issue of, of sovereignty involved. So, yeah, the, even, even the more, uh, you know, there's sort of a spectrum among American labor leaders where you know, somebody like George Meany and the AFL guys were pretty conservative and Ruther and uh, uh, John Lewis and the CIO were a little more uh, towards the socialist side, but they all agreed on this point that, no, this doesn't apply to public employees. We come back from break. We're going to do a brief history of American labor. Those names you might have heard you may not know. Dr. Paul Marino of Hillsdale College, the perfect guide. Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, the perfect commentator. I'm your host, Hugh Hewitt. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on Labor Day. Go to hillsdale.edu for all their courses and Hugh for hillsdale.com for all the Hillsdale Dialogues. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour. Happy Labor Day, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on an extended Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of that wonderful college, and his colleague, Dr. Paul Marino, a professor there. And I got to say, I love doing this hour, and, and maybe we need more time for it, because listening to Joe Hill, I realized again, there are these massive sort of urban myths about labor and and how it existed in American history and how it's interacted Many attempts to co-opt it into a revolutionary moment, including in Michigan itself, the Port Huron statement, the SDS statement, the repeated reaction of labor against it, but now the increasing radicalization of public sector unions. So, and I'm a member of a union, by the way. I'm the member of the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and I've always enjoyed being an after union member. I once voted to go out on strike with my collective bargaining unit of three so that I could cross the picket line, but the other two were on to me, and they voted against going out on strike. The... The movie Cinderella Man communicates it. Dr. Marino, if you would, can you give the brief history of, of when it started and those big names that we touched on before the break and the roles that they played? Yeah, I mean, if you spent the last couple of uh, segments about uh, sort of European-style uh, Marxist-influenced uh, uh, labor movements, yeah, the big question for scholars has always been, why was there none of that in America? You know, why was there no socialism in America? This is another part of the story of, uh, of American exceptionalism. 
and so many intellectuals and historians uh, in in the United States, you know, they lament the fact that the United States didn't have that kind of, you know, uh, politically oriented uh, socialist uh, labor movement. Back in the 19th century, there were there were attempts to do this. You know, Eugene Debs was probably the most important of the uh, of leaders of American socialism, and he attempted in the late 19th century to establish industrial unions that would represent you know all of the workers in, a, in an industry uh, railroads uh, in his case but the tendency for most of american history has been for what what the british call trade unions uh... usually skilled workers uh... in smaller segments of the economy uh... who were you know who put aside politics for the most part and focused on what's often been called you know bread and butter issues of just wages hours and working conditions and it wasn't until the 1930s, until uh, the Great Depression and the New Deal, that you got you know, a, a big step forward in the organization of you know, mass production uh, industrial workers. And that was the, uh, the CIO under John L. Lewis. Uh, and, and, of course, Gus Hall as well. And, mm-hmm. and Gus Hall, I'm from northeastern Ohio, where Gus Hall got famously jailed for blowing up bridges and stuff <laughs> like that. They tried repeatedly to get in there. The communists repeatedly yeah. tried to take over the trade unions, and they were repeatedly vomited out. That's right. And uh, John L. Lewis was able to you know, play a, a pretty deft uh, political game with them, where he realized that uh, communists could be very uh, energetic, very dedicated uh, organizers. But at a certain point, it was going to be harmful to uh, American labor uh, to be associated with them. And shortly after uh, World War II, in 1949, the CIO expelled about nine uh, big unions, that uh, I think they had almost a million members uh, because they were communist-dominated. Uh, and so, you know, again, people on the left refer to this as the, uh, the purge of the left-led unions, as they call them. But they were, you know, they were communist unions, and they were already, this was, in fact, taking place before World War II, when the Soviets were still allies with, uh, with Hitler, where you had you know, politically motivated strikes that were trying to uh, impede American uh, uh, preparation for World War II because these were the orders that Stalin was giving uh, to American communist union leaders. Paul Marino, and, uh, what's that the... Been a big, what's a the... big uh, disadvantage in the Cold War yeah. had uh, these CIO unions not been expelled. What, what's the best book um, for a conservative to read on American organized labor so they get the good and the bad and the controversial and the confusing? Uh, they're good. Um, a scholar named Morgan Reynolds uh, has done a lot of good work in this field. Uh, maybe the best theorist is a, a fellow just passed away. He was a law professor at uh, NYU named Sylvester Petro. Uh, he himself had been a steelworker uh, organizer in the 1930s, and then he became uh, sort of a, a libertarian, and he the, just passed away very recently. There's so much fascinating. Like, there's Eric Hoffer, there's Jimmy Hoffa, there are all these colorful characters who are associated with American labor, but fundamentally it's trade unionism, isn't it? The main uh, uh, sort of uh, characteristic of American unionism is the AFL has always been the larger, uh, you know, more members are members of AFL unions than the CIO, even though the CIO was supposed to represent, you know, the, the mass production workers in autos and steel and the, in the big industries. The AFL always had more members. Now, Larry Arndt, what would the framers have thought of trade unionism? Uh, well, you know, there were guilds in Europe and things like that, so they had some knowledge of you know they weren't exactly unions but you know you have to you have to start with this fact 90 some percent of the people were farmers right and they owned their own land most of them 
and and you know they were they were very much for the rights of property and they were very much for the wide distribution of those so they wanted they wanted discretion over property to be located in the property owner and they wanted everybody to have some and have a chance at some and you know one of the great controversies see so this is the way issues like this appear in the American Revolution one of the sparks of the American Revolution is the British draw an arc to the west of the American colonies and say you can't go out there anymore and the reason is they said trouble with the Indians and the Native Americans and they can't uh, so, so they were, you know, they, it's leading them to a lot of complications with the French, among other things. And the Americans just said, no, we came over here to get our own stuff, you yep. know, to have our own place. Yep. I, and, I recall it to Tocqueville. I don't know where it is, but the happiest man he meets in his journey is a guy with a wagon, a wife, a horse, and an axe heading west. He's got nothing else, but he's just got a wagon, and he's going to go west and carve a life. And George Washington went out to survey his western lands and found all these squatters on them. Uh, so they really don't run into the problem of a lack of opportunity that that labor surplus creates. Yeah, and there's a claim, of course, in modern scholarship that the closing of the frontier meant that America would have to work in a different way now. It's all settled now, and, you know, that, that blossoms after 50 years into the progressive claim, really that the problem of production has been solved and now the problems that remain are problems of distribution. And that's unfair, and the government has to make it fair. That's a dangerous twist to take that. Well, it depends. I mean, it, if your way of doing it, you mentioned it when we were talking earlier before the show, of the Homestead Act, then, then you know, the government's got a bunch of land. It gives it to private individuals. That's what happened in the Land Ordinance of 1785, too. And if what you want to do is take measures so that entrenched companies, you know, don't have big advantages over ones that are not entrenched, so that the economy can be open and vibrant. If that's the aim, then sure, there's things for the government to do. If, on the other hand, you know, what we got now is crony capitalism with a vengeance. And, and that, you know, you get on the list of banks that are too big to fail, and you can't. On the one hand, you do everything they tell you, and on the other hand, you're protected. You're protected, and that's not the way it's supposed to work. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry on Dr. Paul Marino. Half hour left in today's Labor Day special of Hillsdale Dialogue, all of which are available at HughHewitt.com. Hit the Hillsdale Dialogue button. Be right back. 34 minutes after the hour, Americans. Hugh Hewitt, what's my interesting is uh, my guest from Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry on Dr. Paul Marino on this Labor Day, as we talk about American unionism, aren't really on either side. They're on the side of, of not being caught up in the European Marxist-Leninist debacle, but in following how the American path evolved. Uh, right now, it's an aside, uh, Larry Arnd, picking up from where we were, uh, Detroit has 78,000 abandoned buildings, and they're trying to tear them down. I often wonder, why don't they qualify people who are craftsmen and give them to them? Why don't they homestead Detroit? Uh, well, you know, you need, uh, for that to flourish, you need conditions of law and order and stuff like that. And uh, you need liber the, uh, liberty for the people who get them to act. And, uh, the, you know, they're actually struggling to work on those things in Detroit. And God well, bless them in their efforts. When but, you see Governor Snyder, tell him to look at the Homestead Act. Now, Paul Marino, uh, now in our last half hour, we have to turn to the twist that American unionism took, which is to public employment. Now, you wrote two years ago, uh, more than 
just about two years ago, actually, in the Wall Street Journal, how public unions became so powerful. And uh, they are powerful. They're growing so powerful, in fact, that they're going to bankrupt California and New York, and they have bankrupted Detroit. Does, does this self-correct, or in fact, did the tipping point get passed long ago? Uh, well, it looks, uh, the, the rise of public sector unions only became possible when the states began to permit them by law. And uh, Wisconsin was the first of these uh, to do that in 1958. It was ironic that uh, you know, Wisconsin sort of the battleground for uh, Scott Walker trying to uh, reverse that. Yeah, he was my guest and, last week talking about that, yep. Yeah, and it's in a sense, I think it was just at that moment in American history, America was so you know prosperous. Things had been going so well for so long. You know, we had no competition after World War II. Uh, we we had made adjustments in private sector unionism so that it didn't seem so dangerous anymore. And I think for a while the American people thought, well, yeah, we can we can afford to do this. Uh, we can let public employees. Uh, unionize, and uh, it'll still be okay. What they didn't realize is that they were bargaining away the money of generations down the yep. road. Yeah. Uh, in fact, and the, the incentives for them to sort of defer, uh, for elected officials uh, to defer until uh, the future, uh, the promises that they were making at the bargaining table with the people who had contributed uh, to their own election. I mean, there was a built-in moral hazard in, uh, in public sector bargaining. Uh, Larry Arn, uh, what is your opinion on the constitutionalism of the federal government authorizing the state government to breach these contracts? And otherwise... Uh, expanding the bankruptcy power to encompass state and local governments because these contracts are killing America. Well, if the federal government can't do it itself and the contract clause says it can't, then it can't authorize other entities to do it. And most of the state constitutions say they can't do it. The contracts clause um, remains in its only form to be applied against governments advantaging themselves vis-a-vis private sector but this is all public sector stuff. I'm not sure the contracts clause was intended to protect public contracts with public entities, which are public unions. Well, okay, but um, um, the the uh, you know first of all, they ought not to have made these contracts. Agreed. And they're self dealing when they make them. They're self dealing in two respects. One is they're 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 representing management, but really it's somebody else's money. And most of these things have long-term consequences that extend beyond the careers of the politicians who make them. And the second respect is these people are very organized in politics, and they, you know, they're the strongest single force, I think, in, in American politics today, public sector unions. And so they can help them a lot and, uh, and hurt them a lot if they don't do what they want. So, and that's why I don't think they're contracts in the sense that the American founders thought of contracts. So you'd say they're made under duress, and so they're not legitimate contracts. They're not legitimate contracts because they are, in fact, not between two private parties bargaining. And that's what the contracts clause was intended to do, is to stop land getting constantly passed around by virtue of of, of new legislation canceling previous agreements. And so I think they're outside of it. But the question nevertheless remains, there's a federalism question. Should the Federals come to save the states from their own folly? Yeah, well, you, you do need, um, you, you know, you need a mechanism to get out from under these things. And most of the efforts, by the way, are, you know, prospective in their nature. The government's not broke yet. The people of the, the United States not broke yet. And so if you start fixing the things now, they'll work their way through. And remember what we're talking about here. I mean, in some states... 
you can have two careers in government by the time you're 50 and you can have two pensions and in some states you can enjoy one of those pensions while you're still working for the government oh and staggering it is routine not usual but routine to find three hundred four hundred thousand dollar annual pensions for public employees under the age of 60 that will continue until their death. Larry R. and Paul Marino are my guests. Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry R. and Paul Marino of Hillsdale College, both uh, terrific experts on American labor. Uh, Dr. Marino, the um, I, I, as I said, I'm from a union town. UAW ran Warren, Ohio politics. Northeastern Ohio was a deep blue part of the, the uh the country because of the UAW and the steel workers, but they never got greedy. There was lots of corruption, right? Like the Teamsters, there would be occasional corruption within unions, but they never tried to kill the entity that fed them. I don't think that's true about public unions. I think that they have no incentive not to kill the entity because they think the entity can endlessly tax the taxpayer. Am I right about this fundamental difference? Well, that's, that's going to be a big question in terms of the survival of public sector unions uh, in the future, in that if they really want to stick uh, fast on the point you were just talking about, about these pension promises uh, being non-negotiable, uh, then there are going to be, you're going to be facing, you know, serious, you know, large-scale fiscal uh, problems. And I think then you'll see the kind of public reaction that you did in, uh, in Wisconsin. And so and unions often face this problem where, you know, do we want to make the best deal we can for our, our senior and retiring people? Uh, but if that comes at the expense of, of new entrants into the uh, union, then you're not going to exist in the future. How, is, how are private sector unions doing, Paul Marino, in 2014, the, the year that this uh, conversation first airs? They're about exactly where they were 100 years ago uh, before the federal law began to you know, try to promote uh, organized labor. So they're uh, somewhere around seven percent of the private sector workforce is, is unionized. Isn't that isn't that fascinating? Yeah. They now they did uh, sort of undo themselves in that uh, because you know there were places for businesses to go out of a state like uh, Michigan when it was you know, very pro union. Uh, you had capital over the course of time was able to find places that were just more you know more friendly to job creation. Now, are are you yourself grateful that American labor organized when it did in order to prevent the wobblies and more radical forces from radicalizing working America during the Depression? Oh, I and mean, even before that, in the late nineteenth century, where you had you know anarchists uh, you know going back at least to the eighteen eighties and the, uh, the you know the Haymarket bombings. Uh, you had, you did have movements towards uh, syndicalism and socialism in America. So I think the AFL was a very healthy thing in that it, it did channel uh, the main course of uh, American labor uh, development uh, in, in ways that were better than those. And also, even though the AFL leaders were sometimes inconsistent about this, they did often say that they just that they were completely voluntary, non-coercive institutions. That they just wanted the government to, to leave them alone. Uh, to let them organize and use the, use their market power. Again, often that was uh, uh, not, not borne out in the way they behaved, but they, they did uh, at least express a, a philosophy of voluntarism that I think was, was, was good. Now, Larry Arnn, in, in the last Supreme Court term, in the Harris case, uh, Justice Alito came very close, didn't quite get there, but came very close to saying much of what is passed for law with regards to union dues, is unconstitutional because it's enforced speech. It's, it's You're obliged to pay for the speech with which you disagree. Do you welcome that development because it will, in effect, lessen the amount of speech of working people generally 
who want the unions to be powerful. I don't believe that for a minute. Uh, that that <laughs> that, that uh, you know, first of all, uh, everybody can talk, right? And they should be able to. But if what you're required to do is pay your dues, you know, which is sometimes heavy dues, in order to fund political campaigns with which you don't agree. And, you know, it's always been estimated that the numbers who don't agree are at least large minorities. And see, that means somebody else then is doing the talking. You're not talking. And so, you know, I mean, like, you know, I think unions, I, I know a guy in Kansas City who runs a, a printing firm that's a more than 120 years old, and his grandfather and grand, you know, all way back, they've all run it. And they love the union. It's a means of employee communication, and you surely need that. Right. But if what it becomes is a means of extortion, it's going to be an extortion, not just of the of the owners of the business and their customers, remember, and their shareholders. It's also going to be an extortion of the workers. Well, they're, they're, and, and I'm going to try and channel the SEIU here. Uh, that's all true. There's always a substantial minority that doesn't want it. But a majority does want it. And the free rider effect is, in fact, We'll get people saying, do all that you do and represent us, but we don't want to pay for it. We want to be free riders along the way. Yeah, but, and see, we're talking about two different issues. The majority wants collective bargaining. That's one thing. Maybe that majority could bargain collectively. But the second thing is, does a majority want to support candidate X and party X and never the other one, which is what happens. Yes, that's what happens. And, 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 and the point is, what about that minority then? Because you're talking about their civil liberties now. You are. And so, Dr. Marino, when did unions start to do this? When did they figure out that they could use collective bargaining to influence politics, not merely the conditions of work? Well, I think it's really most clearly in the 1930s uh, when the CIO established, I think it was the first political action committee, uh, where they realized that their own ability to organize workers depended upon favorable federal legislation. And so that led to uh, the first restrictions on uh, you know, union campaign uh, contributions and on you know, the political activity also of uh, federal officers on the Hatch Act in 1939. So this has been a problem for, for a long time. And the law already provides for, uh, in many states, that you know, workers can be uh, compelled to contribute the, the to that part of union expenses that are actually about collective bargaining, but they can't be compelled to pay for those things that are, are political activity. Yeah, it seems to me the happy medium is an opt-in mandate. That yeah, you could... yeah, in fact, that's, uh, you know, there, there's a great variety of this across the states uh, between you know, compulsory unionism and, and uh, real you know, uh, right to work. Yeah, to make, it, to make it easy to say, yeah, take a few extra bucks for politics, I trust you, or say nay, uh, but but the unions don't want that. They want to trick some people in or oblige some people to pay. And that's what uh, Dr. Arn is saying. When we come back, uh, our segment turns now to the, the political crisis in front of us and whether union uh, membership in this conversation, are they in fact comfortable with the decline of America into American socialism? Or are they going to in fact be part of the renaissance of the Republican Party? Our mutual friend Rick Santorum wrote a book called Blue Collar Conservatism based on the theory that Reagan uh, Democrats are still out there, they're still union members, and they're coming back home. We'll find out what Dr. Paul Marino, Dr. Larry Arndt think about that. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at HughForHillsdale.com, including this special Labor Day edition. Uh, Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 
55 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show today. Short segment. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Paul Marino, thank you for doing the special Labor Day segment with me. It's been a terrific conversation. Um, Rick Santorum has a new book out called Blue Collar Conservatives, uh, in which he argues that union members ought to be uh, with the party of Lincoln. Uh, Dr. Arn, do you think that's going to work? Uh, well, I think it's vital that it work. <laughs> it uh and and you know the the future they say though imminent is obscure and it matters so much who does what in politics like it matters so much who the candidates are and it matters all of that right and so my own view is it uh, what i believe uh, i i can i believe by the way the alternative is simply insupportable is that the good sense of the american people is intact as you said and that when the arguments are made to them well, then they will understand the choices that are before them. And that includes people who work in manufacturing businesses and traditionally unionized businesses, right? If we, if we could go back to that place where the unions were not so politically partisan as they are today and not so concentrated in the public sector, that would be better. Dr. Marino, thank you again. The first famous Reagan Democrat, a union member who crosses over to become a Republican, is actually Ronald Reagan, who, who leads the SAG in, a, in an effort to throw the communist out and begins his journey. Do you see that happening much? Well, I, I think it's very interesting, this uh, Santorum idea about you know, the, the party of Lincoln being the party of labor, because there was, a, there was a big strike just as Lincoln, I think between his election and his inauguration, uh, the Lynn Shoemakers were out on strike. And Lincoln said, well, I think that's, that's great. You know, workers should have a right to organize and to go out on strike. And really, that's what the Republican Party is all about. It's, I didn't you know, know that. The freedom to work. But again, the, the crucial element is coercion. And I think there are a lot of things that we could do in American labor law and policy that are alternatives to the system of compulsory and majority unionism. Some other countries do this. I think um, Australia or New Zealand have you know, pluralistic systems where workers can choose between a number uh, of organizations. So there are, there are a lot of ways in which the system could be, uh, could be reformed. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Paul Marino, thanks to you both for a terrific day. And to your colleague, Dr. Thomas West, I would encourage all of you on this Labor Day, enjoy the end of summer, get ready for a great fall, and make sure that if you are not up to speed on all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, that you get yourself over to HughHewitt.com. Hit the uh, HughHewitt.com Hillsdale Dialogue button and become uh, familiar with all of our conversations dating back to two years ago when we began with the Iliad up through uh, the one that you're just hearing today. Also, go to Hillsdale.edu and sign up for the monthly speech digest. It's absolutely free in Primus. It will bring you all of the great speeches which are delivered at Hillsdale College and all of the online courses at Hillsdale.edu. Make this fall as we head into the election, the uh, the fall in which you're going to be as smart as the guy next to you and the gal next to you, and you can do that via Hillsdale.edu. I'm off for the next four days. Congressman John Campbell will be in for me, but uh, you'll enjoy him. Believe it or not, he's a smart congressman. We'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.